Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning. All right. Well, we've been working through a series, as Mike just said, on what what idea? Good, okay. <laughs> it's like a little pause there. The gospel, and we have four concepts, four uh, ideas that we're using to move us through the concept of the gospel. What's the first one? Right, and a few weeks ago you heard Mike preach on God, and we learned that God is the creator, that he's righteous, that he's holy, there's no insufficiency or wickedness in him. He's perfect, and he's the one to whom we are accountable. Who remembers that? Oh, um... Real question. Who remembers that? Yes. Just say, I do. Thank you. I realized my question wasn't clear. We'll continue. We'll move on. Next, we learned about man. And we learned specifically about the tragic mark of humankind that is sin. We went back to the garden and we saw Adam and Eve. God made Adam and Eve. They were meant to bear his image. Things were good. They had everything they needed to carry out the mission that God had given to him and to them, both to multiply and to take dominion. And he said to them, you can eat of any tree you want except for this one tree. And the serpent approaches Eve and Adam and Eve together, even though they're meant to represent their creator king, even though they've been given everything that they need, they say, not God's will, our will. And they eat from the tree and humankind falls. They invite sin into the world. And along with sin, they invite death into the world and all the consequences in between those two things, suffering and division. So we have God to whom we are accountable And we have sin, this issue, this main problem that we all experience. What's the third concept? Christ. Today the hero arrives. We learn about Jesus. We learn about what he did about humankind's most fundamental problem. And next week we'll talk about response. And what I want to do is is, uh, spend time in the book of Romans today. And Romans is not so much a book, it's, it's a letter. It's a letter written by Paul. Who, who knows uh, who Paul is? Just raise your hand if you've heard of Paul. Good, I'm glad. We just went through a series on the book of Acts. Was that good? Good, I'm glad. And we went through the series on the book of Acts. And, and one of the main characters in Acts is this, this guy named Paul. And if you don't know who he is, I'm going to explain him. And if you do know who he is, you can just hear again who Paul is. Paul is introduced in the book of Acts as an opponent of the church, an enemy of Jesus, and an enemy of Christians. And, and when he's introduced... We see Stephen being stoned to death for his beliefs in Jesus outside the temple. And Paul is standing, looking on at the murder of Stephen, and he's approving. He's excited that Christians are being dealt with. And then he moves on to go deal with more Christians. He's going to go to Damascus and find more of these Christians and deal with them there, get them sent to prisons. And on the way to Damascus, he meets Jesus. And his heart changes, and his life changes, and his future changes, and his profession changes. He moves from a persecutor to a professor of faith, to one of the greatest proponents of Christianity. And he goes around on missions trips, and he tells people about Jesus, and he proclaims the gospel. And one of the coolest things about the New Testament is we can read about the life of Paul in Acts, but we can also read about his personal correspondence to the various churches that he's preaching to, that he spends time with. And we get to see some of his beliefs, some of his ideas about the gospel expanded and clarified. And perhaps the most famous of Paul's letters is the letter to the Romans. 
And he's writing to a church in the midst of division. Rome is the center of the ancient world at the time. It's the seat of the Roman Empire, the emperor who has immense power. And what had happened was a few decades before, the emperor had expelled all of the Jews from Rome. Now, churches at the time, they were made up of Jews, the historic uh, descendants of God's people, Israel. And it was made up also of Gentiles, a word that means everyone who's not Jewish. And what happened was the emperor expelled all the Jews, even Jews who were professing Christians. If they were ethnically Jewish, they were required to leave the city. So they all left. And then the church that remained was only Gentile. And they raised up Gentile leaders and the church took, took on some Gentile character. And then eventually this edict, this proclamation of the emperor is reversed and Jews return to the churches they were once a part of and they see new leaders that are Gentiles. And there's some division now because the churches that they return to are different than the ones that they left. Not theologically, more so much as like in their character and in the leaders who were taking care of them. So there's division. The Jews are not big fans of the Gentiles and the Gentiles are not big fans of the Jews even inside the church. And Paul is going to address this issue of Jewish-Gentile division, but he's not going to address it in super, super specific ways. He's going to do a little bit of that. What he's going to do is take the Jewish-Gentile division, he's going to wrap it up in the larger issue of the gospel. You remember two weeks ago, or was it last week? Last week, we talked about the problem of sin, the fundamental problem of humankind, the thing that every human experiences and is condemned by. Even sin like division. And Paul is going to address their greatest solution. That is Jesus Christ. So he's on his way to Rome. And he's not been there yet. So he writes in this letter and he wants to use Rome as a missions base to go on to do more missions work in Spain. So he's writing to them a support letter. And what's cool is as he's writing the support letter, he's describing to them the gospel that he's preaching. as sort of a resume of his beliefs. And because he does this, we get one of the best summaries of the gospel in the entire Bible. I believe the gospel is everywhere in the Bible. You can go to any passage and you can find elements of it like all over the place. But in Romans, we get a really, really good summary of the gospel message. And Paul is going to begin to address some of the main concepts that we've been going through. He begins a little bit in in Romans 1.18 with the issues of God and sin. He says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He begins with the issue of this holy God to whom humans are accountable and the fact that human beings have sinned. He's addressing God and sin right here and then he's going to expand on the concept of sin. And so he continues. And in chapter one, he talks about all of the sin of the Gentiles, all the terrible, evil, disgusting things that they do, all the ways that they've offended God. Remember, this is a support letter that he's writing to them. He's writing to them about their sin. And you can imagine the Jews, who are not big fans of the Gentiles at the time, are hearing Paul rebuke the Gentiles, and they're like, yes, get them, Paul, get them. They're excited about that. And a few verses in, after Paul has roundly rebuked the sin of the Gentiles, he then turns to the Jews and says, and also the same for you. All the same sins. He addresses the sin of all of humankind in the first chapter, two chapters of Romans. Remember, this is a support letter that he's writing to them. And then he gets to chapter 3. And he says this in 3.9. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So chapters 1, chapters 2, and most of chapter 3, about half of chapter 3, is dealing with the fact that humankind has this fundamental, central death problem. Sin. Sin is true for everyone. Paul spends the first portion of his letter addressing that issue. And then about halfway through chapter 3, we get a shift in tone. We've heard the bad news. And now he's going to describe the good news. And that's what we're going to spend the beginning portion of our time together today in. In Romans 3, one of the best summaries of the gospel, one of the most important passages in the New Testament. So go in your Bibles to Romans 3.21, and we'll read it together. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a beautiful passage where we hear what God has done about the problem of sin, sin that invited death into the world. There's a bunch of things in, in it that I think are helpful. One is he says there is no distinction. There is no distinction. And he's talking specifically about a distinction between Jews and Gentiles here. But I think it applies to all distinctions. A few weeks ago, I gave an introduction to the series and I talked about counterfeit gospels, false gospels. And the problem is people often identify the wrong problem. They say, here's the main opponent or difficulty or problem in my life. It's about money. It's about career. It's about relationships. If you have money problems, you go see a financial counselor. If you have career problems, you go see a job coach. If you have illness, you go and see a doctor. Paul is saying all those things might be problems, but there's a more fundamental problem that doesn't just apply to this type of person or that type of person. There's a fundamental problem that applies to everyone, the problem of sin. And then he says this about our sin. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in 24, he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift and are justified justified. Who has heard the word justified before? Most of your Bibles probably translate this Greek word as justified, and it's correct, but one of the problems in English is justified or being justified, kind of like it flags up the wrong idea in our mind. We say something like this, there's this guy who speeds through an intersection, he's going really fast, he's driving recklessly, and we say, what that guy did was evil, it was wrong, he endangered a bunch of other lives, he should have been driving recklessly in that way. And then we find out later, oh, he was an undercover police officer chasing a dangerous criminal. Oh, his actions were justified. Turns out he was right all along. Do we use justified in that way? We use it like when we get in fights with our friends or our spouses. Like, who won Best Actor in 2007? You argue about it, you know? You guys ever have those arguments? iPhones change those. You scroll down into IMDb, you're like, oh, this person won. You're like, I was justified. I was right the whole time. And the rest of the night's kind of tense. You guys know what I'm talking about? When Paul says justified, he's not talking about justified in that sense. He's not saying 
Human beings were always right, and now they've been proven to be right. He's actually saying human beings were wrong, and they were made right. An English word we could use that sounds like an old-timey word is right-wising. <laughs> they were made to be right. Human beings were not right all along. When God justifies human beings, he is right-wising them. He's taking something or someone or a group that is in the wrong, and he is making them right. How does he do this? We read in the next verse. They were the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. If you had never read the Bible before, if someone just gave you these six verses to read, you would probably understand all of the words in this passage except for one word, propitiation. Who's heard the word propitiation before? Most of you have. Propitiation is getting at the idea of atonement. Now, I want to like warn you just so you're aware. We're going to deal with some, some complex stuff today. Okay, so occasionally I'll check in and say, are you still with me? And what will you guys say? Thank you. Oh, that will be so helpful. So you can see some, you already you see some definitions in your, in your sermon notes. You're like, oh, there's definitions here. This is going to be intense. All right, atonement. Atonement is the satisfaction of divine justice by the Lord Jesus Christ in his active and passive obedience, i.e., his life and death, which procures for his people a perfect salvation. Propitiation is a way of saying atoning sacrifice. And let me explain what I mean. When Paul uses these words, he's sort of hearkening back to an Old Testament practice. The people of God in the Old Testament, they had a temple and they had a priest and they had a way of addressing sin. The people would sin throughout the year and they had various sacrifices, but there was this one important sacrifice on one day of the year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would bring with him the sacrificial animal and that animal's blood would be poured out and what would happen was the wrath of God would be poured out on that animal in the place of human beings. God's judgment redirected. So then Paul is saying, listen, you used to do this thing where you take animals into the temple and the animal would be this atoning sacrifice for the people, God's wrath being directed towards the animal instead of the people. I'm telling you that Jesus was this. He goes to the cross and through his blood, we see receive atonement because he is our propitiation, the one who was killed in our place so that we might have life. Are you still with me? Okay, you understand that concept? All right. Then he says one more thing. He says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We're dealing with the issue of God's justice. You remember God is holy. He's perfect. He cannot overlook sin. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you heard Mike talk about how God is not an unscrupulous janitor. He doesn't see sin and lift a rug up and sweep it quietly under the rug. Sin has to be addressed. Here's how God can be both just, deal with sin, and the justifier of the one who believes. God's justice is poured out on Jesus so that we might be justified. Still with me? Okay. One of the reasons why this is important and I think today it doesn't feel as important to us because we very much like the idea of a God who overlooks sin. We don't want a God who is just against sin. We want a God who just forgives sin. But if you lived in the ancient world, and actually in many places around the world today, it mattered whether God was just. And I, I don't want to tell you, it does matter whether God is just. You see, ancients, they worshipped all kinds of different gods. 
For a second, get like Disney's Hercules out of your head. Just erase it, remove it. Ancient Greeks and Romans worshipped all sorts of gods. They had household gods, river gods, gods for various professions. And they would offer sacrifices or offerings to these gods to just try and compel these gods to do something for them. And you can read these sacrifices and offerings in all kinds of different places. And they're just like, I really want this God to do this thing. And here's all the right words and all the right components of the sacrifice. I really hope that this particular God will do the thing he says that he's going to do. But if you were an ancient Greek or an ancient Roman, you could not be sure. Because ancient gods changed their minds. You could not be sure that an ancient god, a pagan god, would do what he said he was going to do. And Paul is saying, you can be sure in this transaction. You can be sure in it. God has been just, and he has been the justifier of the one who believes. We have an atoning sacrifice in whom we can be certain. Amen? So I want that to stand in the background. God takes on both sides of the transaction. His wrath is poured out on his son. And then we move into Romans 5, where we're going to spend the rest of our time. So if we go to Romans 5, 12, we can read this together. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This passage is both simple and complex. It's like Ikea furniture. You see see it, right? You're like, oh, in the store, that looks great. I'm going to take that home and I'm going to build it. And you spend hours in the sanctification process of putting this thing together I bought all I can of furniture when we moved into a new apartment, and it was a terrible time. thought it was going to be good. Terrible time. On the verge of tears. <laughs> seems simple. It seems like it's clear. And in one sense, this passage is simple. It's really just doing this. It's comparing what Jesus did to what Adam did. We read Genesis 3 last week, and we read about what happened when Adam and Eve said to God, not your will, but our will be done. And then now in Romans 5, uh, Paul is saying, Adam acted one way and Jesus acted another. And really, if we're going to boil it down to two points, 
which conveniently we often do for sermons, <laughs> we would say this. In Adam, sin arrives and death reigns. That's Genesis 3. In Adam, sin arrives and death reigns. The problem. And then in Romans 5, the solution. In Jesus Christ, justification arrives and righteousness reigns. There's a simplicity to this text that is helpful. Any Jewish reader and any Gentile reader who is familiar with the narrative of Genesis would know what Paul is doing. Paul is saying there was this moment way, way back when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and that was when the problem began. That was when we got death and division and condemnation. And he's saying, now in Jesus, we have something else. That's the simplicity of it. It is, however, at the same time, somewhat complex. So occasionally, as we walk through it, we're going to dive into some complex things in order to emphasize the simplicity and the greatness of what Paul is saying in this passage. So first, in Adam, sin arrives and death reigns. Read 12 through 14 with me again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and then a dash, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul begins this tight and precise argument with a sentence that ends in your Bible with a dash. Who's got a dash in their Bible? Most of you should, right? He begins... You know, this, 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 dash. Paul begins a sentence that he doesn't finish in this passage. And it's it's not that Paul is forgetting where he's going. He's not like beginning a sentence and then just like losing the thread. That's what I do. Paul begins this sentence and then immediately he is anticipating objections that people are going to have from what he claims in this sentence. But we need to understand the claim. We have to follow the logic. So just real, real quickly, word by word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. He doesn't say who the one man is, but he means Adam. And anyone reading this and us having heard Genesis 3 last week will remember, yes, Adam and Eve at the tree, tempted by the serpent. They disobeyed God. And when that happened, sin entered into the world. Yes, I agree, Paul, I understand. And death through sin. Yes, we remember that as well. God raises Adam up from the dust. He gives him life and he gives him a mission and Adam disobeys. And then God says to Adam, you will now return to the dust. We remember that. And so death spread to all men. We know that's true both from our own lives and from reading the rest of Genesis where people continually die over and over again. Then he says, because all sinned. And this is the moment where we arrive at a more controversial claim. Now, some of us could read this, and if we read it really, really straightforwardly, we might think that what Paul is saying is that Adam sinned, and because he sinned, he died, and then we sin, and because we sin, we die. But that's not the argument that Paul is building. He's building an argument built on contrast between Adam and Jesus. So we have to talk about some concepts that I think are difficult for specifically modern Western Americans. So the first one is the idea that all human beings sin, that they possess sin, that sin is, as we learned last week, a state. Who remembers that? Okay, I can make a really easy argument for the fact that we all possess sin. All of my children that are already talking have lied to me. (laughs) You guys know what I'm talking about? I have never held a lying clinic in my house where I've taught them how to lie. 
they naturally did it. Here's another one. You see these screens, these little boxes right here with the numbers that pop up occasionally? You guys know what I'm talking about. It's the lottery you can only lose. <laughs> when you see your number, your first thought is not this. Oh, my number. That means my kid must have done something very righteous, and I can't wait to go back and find out what they thought they should call me out to tell me my kid did. Now, your first thought is, oh, no, he bit someone again or something like that, right? We got, uh, I heard someone say we got vipers and diapers, right? So this is the first thing. Human beings are sinners. The next concept is the concept of representation. And we understand representation. We understand that we elect representatives. We hire lawyers to represent us. I think for Westerners, that makes sense. The third one is the issue of corporate identity, that we are a group together. And when you gather these three things together, you have the concept of federal headship. One man who represents us in his actions over all of us. What Paul is saying is we all sinned in Adam's sin, and we possess and inherit Adam's sin. He is not saying that we individually sin and are condemned. That's true. He's saying more fundamentally, we inherit Adam's sin. And the word we might use is imputed. Imputation is the word we might use. I think I have a definition for that as well. Imputation is the reckoning or placing to a person's account the merit or guilt that belongs to his federal head. Adam functions as a federal head, our corporate leader, and in his sin, we are given sin. His sin is imputed, it's reckoned to us. Are you guys still with me? Okay, this is important because the argument that Paul is gonna make about Jesus is paralleled to Adam's, but something different is happening. He, began, he ends uh, this little section in verse 14 by saying, Adam, comma, who was a type of the one who was to come. He says, Adam was a type, like a stamp or an impression, a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of another human being, Jesus, who's not just a human being, but God himself. So you have Adam and Jesus and the correspondence the thing that's the same about them is they both carry out actions that affect the rest of mankind. You guys still with me? All right, I want to read 15 through 19 real quickly. We read, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul is drawing a correspondence between Adam and, Adam and Jesus. He's saying both of them are federal heads. Both of them are human beings that 
uh, act as corporate leaders of the rest of humanity, both of them did something that affects the rest of humankind, then immediately, as soon as he says that Adam and Jesus are types of each other, he draws contrast. He says, but in one, you have sin, you have death, you have judgment, you have condemnation, and in the other, you have righteousness, you have life, you have justification, and you have hope. He describes Jesus as a new federal head under whom we can possess all the things that we need. Adam imputes sin to us. Jesus imputes righteousness to us. Now, are you still with me? Okay. I want to address three issues, three important things that we read as Paul is describing to us the significance of what Jesus has done as a federal head, what Jesus has done as the atoning sacrifice, what Jesus has done as the solution to our problem. And the first is obedience. In verse 19, we read, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul, again, is doing a contrast. He brings us back to the moment of Adam and Eve at the tree, and he says, Adam and Eve are at the tree, and they say to God, not your will, our will be done. And in that act of disobedience, all of us are now under the headship of Adam, doomed to sin and to death. That's the bad news. And then Paul says, but there's good news. There was another in whose obedience, in whose obedience we might be made righteous. Okay, so what was Jesus's obedience? Was it him just doing good things or, or not doing bad things? I want to say that Jesus' o- obedience, it was the entire complex of his life and his death and his resurrection. I want to take you to a place that I've gone to before that I think is so important where we see the arc of Jesus' life of obedience. It's in Philippians when Paul is talking to the church at Philippi. He says in 2.5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, and here we go, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess Uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're seeing the arc of Jesus' life compared to the arc of Adam's life. I want you to see, Adam begins non-existent. God calls him up out of the dust. He raises him, and Adam then wants to ascend even further to be like God. So he disobeys God, and the result is that he will go back to the dust he was brought up from. Jesus begins in the very form of God. He does not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or presumed on, and he humbles himself. If Adam's mode is ascent, Jesus is descent. He humbles himself. He becomes a human being, and he lives a life of obedience, specifically obedience that points him towards a cross where he dies on our behalf so that we might have life, and then he's raised. And he ascends to be with the Father, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You see the opposite arcs of Adam and Jesus? Jesus' obedience, his act of righteousness, is the thing that is imputed to us. Christianity 
is not built on our own righteousness. It's built on the righteousness of Jesus. The goodness we have, the righteousness we have, the means by which we can be saved is not our own doing. It is the doing of Jesus. There's another thing. Over and over and over again, we see the word gift appear. Who noticed that? Gift over and over and over again. Paul says the free gift is not like the trespass. He says the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. He says the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. He says but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification over and over and over and over again. We see the word gift. What do you do to receive a gift? Nothing. You do nothing to receive a gift. It is given to you. All you can do is receive it. Paul calls the wages of sin death. He says death is earned. A gift is received. I want us to see how essential that is. Christianity is not a religion of do's and don'ts. It's done in the name of Jesus. Amen? It is given to us. We receive it. If anyone ever tells you how you can achieve salvation, how you can earn salvation, how you can win for yourself eternal life, they're selling you the same lie the snake told Eve in the garden. Christianity, the gospel is good news. Why? Because it is given to us. And we receive it on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and not our own. Lastly, we, we have this idea of abundance appear over and over and over again. And Paul is drawing contrast. And on the one hand, he's saying, Adam did something bad for us and Jesus did something good for us. But then we get this much more language. If in Adam we have this, much more do we have this in Jesus Christ. And what we're to see is that what we receive in Jesus is greater than what we would have had if Adam had never rebelled in the first place. God is giving us more than just returning things to the way that they were. And he's really doing two things here. One is he's again talking about certainty. When Paul builds his argument saying that everyone sins, he builds that argument on the truth that everyone agrees to that everyone dies. He's saying, how do you know that everyone sins? How can we be sure that everyone is in sin? Because everyone dies. You've heard it said, there's only two certainties in life. What are they? Death and taxes. Everyone knows that people die. I follow this Twitter account called Daily Death Reminder. And it tweets out once a day, you're going to die someday. We live in a culture that tries to distance ourselves from the reality of death. That was not possible in the first century. Paul is saying, how can you know that everyone is a sin? You can know because everyone dies. You can be certain of it. And Paul is saying, how much more can you be certain that you will be raised because of what Jesus Christ has done? He's saying, more certain. Whatever certainty you have that you will die because of sin, or you would have died because of sin, you can be certain, that certain, more certain, that you will be raised because of Jesus' righteousness enacted in obedience at the cross. Abundant life now in the spirit. But more importantly, full and abundant life in the future when Jesus returns and he makes everything right and we have a new heavens and a new earth. Amen? The good news is this. Jesus came and he died in our place so that we might have life. The gospel is not something that we achieve. Salvation is not something that we achieve. It's something that we receive. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the wealth of your riches in Scripture, the, the, the truths that are abundant therein. 
I thank you that you've not only saved us, but that you've told us how you've saved us. Thank you for the work of Jesus at the cross. Everyone can keep their heads bowed for a moment. Uh, I, I want to give people an opportunity to respond to the, to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has died in their place. If you want the salvation that's possible in Jesus, if you believe that your heart has changed and you desire that, well, everyone else's head is bowed. I just want you to raise your hand, and, and we'll pray together. So do it now. I see that hand. I see that hand, too. I see that hand over there. Anyone else? All right. Pray this with me. Father, I thank you that you sent your son to die for my sins. I turn in repentance from my sins and toward you in faith. Pray that you sustain me in obedience as I commit to follow Jesus. I pray all these things in his name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hope.com chapel.org